The scripture reading is Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. You can turn to the scripture in your Bible, or it will be on the screen beside me. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. All right, you can be seated again. So we are in a series on the parables uh, and uh, we're in our, I believe we're in our eighth or ninth week studying the parables, and I don't know about you, but they've just, they've just kind of gnawed at me, if I've got to be honest, right? Week after week, um, those, those stinking reminders we've done of them with the beautiful paintings our artists have done, they've just kind of sit there, and, and, and I'm thinking about them, and I, I think that's exactly what the Lord meant when he, when he was using this teaching device all the time, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that these parables weren't just cut and dry, right? Like, okay, we hear the point, we're done, now let's go to lunch. I think these parables are meant to um, sit with us, to evoke our imagination and our hearts stir us up. I love what N.T. Wright says about uh, the parables. He uses the word stories. He says, these were stories designed to tease, to clothe the shocking and revolutionary message of God's kingdom in garb that left the hearers wondering and trying to think it out, never quite able to pin Jesus down. Like that's kind of the point of, of these parables. And, and uh, I feel like they've done that in, in my heart. And this week is, is no different, even though this parable is very short in just the number of verses, right? You, you pr- probably picked that up in the scripture reading. It's short in, in volume. It is very deep in its actual content of, of the parable. And uh, because of that, I'm actually going to teach um, what's typical. I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach a lot less and then I'm going to shift us over to practice and a reflection, our reflection time, where I'm going to lead us through um, how we're going to reflect on, on, on this parable. Sound good? Okay, I'm doing it whether you like it or not. <laughs> Five, six, that's how we roll in here, okay? Um, have you ever flown in an airplane and, uh, where you're about to land and you look out the window or you just feel Like, we are flying way too fast for this plane to actually land on the runway. Anybody else? We have some great pilots in here, so I'm not saying they'd have ever done this, right? But anybody ever feel that? Like, I almost feel that every time I fly. Like, we're about to land. I'm like, there's no way he or she's going to land this thing, right? And uh, have you ever been right? No? I was one time. We were flying, and I'm like, oh, this is so fast. And typically, right, we just kind of coast in like butter, right? And bing, we all get out. The wheels hit, and we went back into the air. Yeah. And uh, you're like, Kyle, what does this have to do with anything, right? Uh, Jesus, leading up to this parable, I feel, is doing a very similar thing to what those tricky pilots do to me, is he's coming in hot, right? And he's going to land the plane, though, in a way that only he can. You see, Jesus has been coming into the nation of Israel, into these religious leaders with different statements leading up to this, because I'm giving you the context here, things like where Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. Like, what? He'll say things like to the religious leaders, you can discern the weather, but you can't discern the times. 
And then in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, chapter 13, just read it at home. He talks essentially and says this thing like, listen, if you do not repent, you will perish. Right? Like Jesus is coming in hot just with like lasers to these religious leaders and this Jewish audience. Because you have to understand this parable, its context is to the nation of Israel. It's to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders of the day particularly. So I don't want to rip this thing out of context and just slap it on us and go, okay, now we'll actually understand what it says. We have to understand who he was saying and what he was saying in the first century to his first century audience, how they would have understood it. It's only then and then only we will be able to apply it to our lives here in 2023 in McKinney, Texas. And by the way, we will be able to apply it. So let's start, and, and here's the formula I'm going to use, and because I'm going to teach quickly, I'm just going to let you know my, my outline up front, right? There's a purpose, there's a problem, there's patience, and there's an outcome. Sorry, I couldn't think of an alliterated, all right? I'm not that good, okay? There's a, there, there's a purpose, there's a problem, there's patience, and then there's an outcome. First thing, let's look at the text, keep your Bible open. Verse 6, the first part of verse 6 says this, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. What is the purpose of a fig tree? The purpose of, that's not a trick question. You're like, you trick me, right? The, the purpose of a fig tree is to bear figs, okay? You plant a fig tree in the soil to bear figs. That's the purpose of the tree. Now, this statement seemed a little weird to me as I began to study, study the text. A fig tree in a vineyard. A vineyard, I thought, was for vines, right? Grapes and, and things like that. And so I had to do a little bit more study. Actually, a vineyard, when it's used like this biblically, is a place for vines and, and grapes and things like that. But, but when a vineyard is used like this, it essentially just means the most fertile soil, the best soil, the best real estate, the prime spot for something to grow really well. There's nothing in the nutrients of the soil, the, the sun being able to come down where it would have adequate rain, not gather too much, not get too little, right? If it did rain, like it was perfect. And the idea with that is that there's nothing hindering environmentally this fig tree from growing or doing its purpose. Nothing. It's planted in the vineyard. It's planted in the, in the prime spot. However, for the first century audience, for, for the Jewish audience that Jesus was teaching to, leaders included, Jesus saying fig tree and vineyard in one sentence or one statement would have piqued their ears up. Because it would have thrown them back to all of these different Old Testament texts where a fig tree and a vineyard or a vine represented kingdom. The kingdom. And so 1 Kings chapter 4, for example, and it, it talks about under King Solomon's rule. Every man sat under his fig and took from, from the grapes. Or sat under a, a tree and took from the vine. Zechariah, he was a prophet. And in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10, you can put that up. Now, Zechariah is not talking about a current age like I just was with King Solomon. Zechariah is actually talking about a future age in God's kingdom. When God's kingdom comes, when his Messiah comes, this is what it's going to be like. So he's describing a future kingdom. In that day that I just described, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Did you see that? Vine and fig. Very short parable, but massive implications to his hearers. So what it's saying there is that God's kingdom, when the Messiah comes, here's what it's like. So you would, why would you sit under a vine, right? By the way, this is like massive vines where it provides shade and shelter, protection. Another biblical word, 
shalom was represented there. It's this peace, it's this rest, it's, it's, it's shelter for the weary, it's, it's shelter, it's protection from, from outside things getting in. And then the fig, the fig tree represented not, not, not shalom or peace, it actually represented prosperity. So they would, they would find shelter under the vine, they would drink wine from the grapes, and they would have food in the figs, right? In this kingdom, in other words, all things are working together, right? People are cared for. Uh, there's no lack. There's perfect peace. There's perfect prosperity. Not like you think about prosperity, but different, like biblical prosperity, right? Where everything's perfect, per, uh, uh, operating perfectly without sin. Like that's the coming kingdom we're longing for, right? That's what Zechariah is talking about. Fig and vine. And now you're getting the scene where Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree that is what? Barren. The problem, right? Look at it in, in verse, verse 6b. And he, the owner of the field, comes. He came seeking fruit on it, right? Because that's the purpose of a fig tree. And found how much? None. In verse 7. And he, that's the owner, said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I've been seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Now, fig trees do not produce figs until they mature after three years old. So most people believe that this fig tree in this, again, this is a fictitious story, in this vineyard would be anywhere from six to seven years old, okay? Where this owner of the vineyard keeps coming back and go, well, year four, I didn't see anything. Year five, year six. And at year six, he looks at the vine dresser or the manager of his vineyard and says, I have found no figs on that tree. In verse 7b, what does he say? Therefore, what's the conclusion? He says, cut it down. And he goes, look at the question in your Bible. Why should it take up the ground? He goes, why should it take up the ground? I have put it in its most prime spot. I have, I have the nutrients in the soil. I have, you know, I have taken care of it. All of these things, like it's just taking up ground. Now, if you know your Bible, right, and you are, are particularly well-versed in Deuteronomy, right, anybody? Eh, no, I didn't think so. Um, you know that there is a chapter in Deuteronomy that talks about that you are to cut down a barren fig tree after three years, that if it's not producing fruit, and here's why in Deuteronomy, because that fig tree that is barren can actually destroy the soil and the things around it. So the owner's coming to him going, listen, you've got to pull, cut that thing down. It's not fulfilling its purpose. And in fact, in not fulfilling its purpose, it's going to destroy everything around it. At minimum, it's just going to suck the nutrients my vines need or the other fig trees need. Are you starting to feel Jesus' point here a little bit more? Remember, he's talking to the first century Jewish leaders and Jewish audience. And this is where we get that third P, the patience. Look at verse 8. Wait, if that's what Deuteronomy says, the manager steps in and says this. And he answered him, the owner, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. What's he asking for? One more year. Give me one more shot. And after, after that year, you come back, and it's still not producing, it's still not bearing fruit, cut it down. And he says in verse 9, he says, or if it bears fruit, we'll keep it, right? We'll all celebrate because it's, it's doing what its purpose is, bearing figs. 
And so there are two outcomes leveled at this point. The owner is giving either it bears fruit and it stays, or it doesn't and it goes away. I love what one scholar said. He said, between the tree and the axe, nothing intervenes except for the intercession of the vine dresser who's going, let me have one more chance. Let us have one more year. And that's the parable, y'all. Like we're, we're left on a cliffhanger, aren't we? We don't know if the owner says, yeah, give you one more year. We don't know if you get one more year and fruit's produced. We don't know if it continues to be barren. And I want to submit to you this morning, though the parable in Luke chapter 13 is left on a cliffhanger, we know from the rest of the Gospels what the response of the religious leaders are in that day. We know even to this day what the response of many Jewish people are to this day. Even in Luke chapter 13, to highlight this parable and to illuminate the hearts of the religious leaders. Look at what's next after this, where Jesus heals a woman who has been crippled for 18 years. And what do the religious leaders do? They look at Jesus and go, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Just to prove his point of this parable. You see, the Jewish leaders will be the ones who kill Jesus. And by the way, Jesus laid his life down, and I understand the scriptures, no one took it from him, but it was the Jewish leaders who led the charge to kill him. The Jewish temple in AD 70 will be destroyed, which means, by the way, the, the Jewish leaders were out of a job and purpose at that point. The Jewish nation will be overtaken by Rome, and all of this happening within this generation that Jesus is speaking to. However, Let's not miss the great compassion of the vine dresser. The great compassion of this manager, this one who just received word from the owner, cut it down. The one who goes, no, give me one more year. And if I can, I want to take this a step further to say, listen, Jesus understanding himself going, give me one year, because what in that one year did Jesus do? He laid down his life, what? To kick open the door for us, the Jews and Gentiles alike, to be saved by grace through faith alone. Jesus goes, listen, there is more to this patience than what you see. I challenge you this week, I'm not going to read it, now you're going to touch on it, to read Romans 11 as it relates to God's original elect in the Jewish people that they are still on that cliffhanger, if you will. But I do want to move this from the lecture to the lab, and what I mean by that is into practice. What was Jesus calling the nation of Israel to? What was he calling the religious leaders to in this text? One word, repentance. The kingdom message that came out of Jesus' mouth all the time was what? Repent and believe the kingdom of what? God is at hand. And the evidence or lack of, the, the, the lack of evidence, right? The lack of fruit proved that they hadn't repented and received the Jewish Messiah that God had sent in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. So Kyle, how, how does that apply to us? I'm, I, I would assume a mostly Gentile audience, right? How does that apply to us? Well, I want to take the same four 
purpose, problem, patience, and outcome, and say that those, those four things still apply today to every hearer of the gospel. Every person planted has a purpose. What is our purpose? What is our purpose individually? What's our purpose corporately? Well, I've said it so much through this whole service. I hope you've got it by now. Our purpose individually and corporately is this, to glorify God with all that we are. Love the way the Westminster Catechism said, what's the chief end of all men? All men, all women, all those created in the image of God. What is their goal? What is their chief end? To glorify God. To make his name known. If that's your purpose, how are you doing? Okay, let me ask it in a different way. What's the problem? Why can't we do that perfectly? Why is that purpose fractured? It's fractured because of something known as sin, right? That that image of God in our lives is muddied and marred by something called sin. So we have our purpose, we understand it. We understand that the problem, the thing that separates us from God, from us being able to fulfill our purpose. Listen, what was the purpose of the nation of Israel as the Old Testament stated it? That Israel, God's elect, those whom he chose, this little small nation, that they would be a light to the watching world. What was the thing that muddied that light? The same thing, the same problem that we deal with, right? It's sin. It's ourselves getting in the way. It's our priorities. It's our prerogatives. It's all those things get in the way of us actually fulfilling the purpose God has allowed for us to walk in and live in through Christ Jesus. So what should God do? Cut down the barren fig tree. That's what a holy and righteous God could do. But what does our God choose to do? I love the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter. Look at this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Listen, there will be a day where God fulfills every word he has said. So he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is what? Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that's an outcome, but that all should reach, say it, repentance. So praise God first. Can we just like have a little praise break, if you will, for God's patience with us? Right, that he is patient with us, not willing, not, lo- not wanting us to perish, but for us to what? Reach repentance. Now, here's where I want to take us in the brief time we have. How do we repent? Some of you, you have this view of repentance is that it's something you do one time when you receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You have repented of your sins. You've trusted in him. And to that I say yes and amen. However, that is not the full extent of repentance by any stretch or by any means. Martin Luther, we just celebrated Reformation Day on Tuesday. I don't know what you celebrated on Tuesday. I celebrated Reformation Day, okay? So 506, seven years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther, one of the things that he says is this, that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Now, some of you have this view of repentance that you know the Greek word, metanoia. Repentance means changing one's mind. How many of you heard that, right? That's all right. You can raise your hand. That's right. That's the word. That's the Greek word, okay? But it's not just changing your mind. It's changing your mind, your heart, and your will. That is the sum total of what biblical repentance is. It's changing my way to realize that God's thoughts are far better and superior than my thoughts. It's changing my hearts to go, God, the things I love that are incongruous with the things that you love need to die. And the things that you love, I want to love more. 
It's changing my affections. And then my will, guess what? It changes my behavior. That's that 180. That's that turn of repentance because my mind and my heart have been changed by and through the Holy Spirit. That's what whole life repentance is. That's what Jesus is calling and beckoning all of us. Listen, believer and unbeliever alike too. But the question I get oftentimes is this, Kyle, I know I need to, but how do I repent? How how do I do it? I know I need to. And, And here's where I think practice is really important. We are inundated with Christian content. Oh, well, we got, we, you know, we're that fig tree. If we're a fig tree, we probably got too much water, okay? We have all of this Christian content, but what I'm afraid is that we are really frail or weak on Christian practice or Christian obedience. I know what repentance is. I know that I need to do it. I know that it's this gateway into joy. I know that it's how, I, how I'm led into receiving the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ every day, not just in a moment only, but every day of my Christian life. But how do I do it? Well, let's do it together. Let's practice repentance this morning together. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I ain't got nothing to repent of. Let's practice. And by the way, you laugh because we're all going, oh yeah. And maybe some of this church thing is all new for you. And what you view church as is a bunch of, that's where the good people go. And what I like to tell people is, that's where the sinners go to church actually. We as sinners come gathered under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to be able to admit, I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm confused, I'm needy, but for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ who has redeemed me and set my feet on solid ground. But listen, repentance is not just a one-time practice. It is a lifetime journey. So let's do it together. Sound good? And for those of you that don't think you need repentance, you won't make it past step one. Um, This actually comes from Tim Keller, who, who totally ripped it from George Whitfield, 18th century uh, Methodist leader. And of course, the Methodists have a method for repentance, right? It's beautiful. Um, there's going to be four areas of repentance that's going to guide us. The first one, dealing with pride. Next, go to the next slide. Indifference. Next slide. Anxiety. And then the fourth slide, repentance of our motivations. And so go back to the first slide. We're going to keep these up. Uh, Denise, we keep them up for one minute on each slide. And I'm going to email all this because of the response I got in the first service. I'm going to email these slides out this week, okay, so so you'll be able to have them. But I want us to prayerfully wade through these and how we would practice repentance. So Whitfield, he did this inventory every single night before bed. I've tried that. Here's what I experienced. Both deep pain, but greater mercy. I realize how much more I need the grace and mercy of Jesus than I think I do. And so let's walk through this together. I'm gonna be quiet. You respond to the slide, one minute each, and then I'll lead us to the tables. I was reminded, even this morning, on my walk here, how quickly <laughs> I need to f- 
find myself in the place of repentance. Sometimes I'll find myself walking from my house to the church, and uh, this morning was one of those mornings, and so I was walking here early this morning and just praying as I do. Like, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you woke me up. Thank you for the gift of grace. Thankful for this community. Um, really praying about, Lord, I, I know the time we're going to spend in repentance and, and just eating you. And uh, having just a sweet moment with the Lord, you know? And uh, I approach downtown, and I see a school bus pull up, and a marching band pours out of the school bus. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's going to be a marching band on the square during our service. We're going to have this time of repentance where we're quiet, and it's a haven. And the Lord's like, Who's in charge? Why are you so quick to complain? I mean, I was just celebrating repentance and then I need it again. <laughs> but listen, that's our life, but that's the joy we have in Christ. That his spirit that is alive in you is leading you and guiding you. Going, listen, we want to show you that there's a better way. And the way through is through the door of repentance. Going, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. Lord, I have failed. I fail every single day. But your grace and your mercy are new for me this morning. They're new for me as I lay my head down at night. And I wake up again in the morning by your grace and your mercy that I might live for you in your glory. Oh God, help me. Listen, that's what repentance is, church, that we might individually and corporately be marked by a people who run quickly to the throne of grace. Throw ourselves down, going, Lord, I'm prideful. Lord, I have too much indifference in my life to the things that you are not indifferent to. Lord, anxiousness riddles me because I really care what people think. God, give me a single motivation for your glory. Help me, Lord. And here's the crazy thing. Hear me. He actually does. He meets us there in the sweetest of ways, in the kindest of ways. And so these tables represent the way in which Christ met us right where we were. By coming and living the life we could not live and dying the death we deserved, but rising victoriously over death, hell, sin, and the grave so that we might have access before the Father, so that our lives might not produce fruit, but bear fruit for his glory. Don't for a minute think that you produce the fruit in your lives. That is the work of the Spirit. You and I, what we do is we bear fruit for his glory. I love what John, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, verse eight says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how we bear fruit for God's glory and keeping in step with what he calls us to. And so let me pray for us and hosts come down and begin to lead us. Holy Spirit, seal these words in our hearts and our minds for your glory. May this parable set with us far beyond this week. And may the practice of repentance be one that we daily practice for your glory that we find ourselves throwing ourselves at the feet of the cross, the foot of the cross every day so that we might receive the joy that is set before us, the joy that is Jesus. Now may we receive these elements for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Darren, you can lead us.